We'll be in Psalm 111 tonight. Psalm 111. What about 110? We'll do 110 on Sunday. Saving 110 for Sunday morning and actually an amazing, amazing Christmas message um, that falls right in place with where we are in the Psalms. So we'll, we'll get there on Sunday morning and set that aside for now. But going on to Psalm 111 tonight and 112. <clears throat> and let's just, uh, let's just read through them. Both Psalms, starting in verse 1, Psalm 111. There. Praise the Lord. Or in the Hebrew, Hallelujah. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. In the company of the upright and in the assembly, great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has made His wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear Him. He will remember His covenant forever. He's made known to His people the power of His works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of His hands are truth and justice. All His precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to His people. He has ordained His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. Praise the Lord! How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in His house, and His righteousness endures forever. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment. For he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Father, awesome are your words. Great before us laid out here tonight. We just pray that we could feast for a little while on these and on the truth that's contained in these two psalms together. And I pray, Father, that You will bless our hearts even as we seek to bless Your name with our lives. Father, that You have already blessed our heart with grace, we thank You. And we pray tonight, illumination, Lord, revelation to Your Word. For Your works are mighty and awesome, and we love You and we praise You for them. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I read both of these psalms together purposefully because they are to be taken together. These are twin psalms. They're twin orphanic psalms, both without a known writer. But they parallel each other so perfectly, so closely, that they read like fraternal twins. Slightly different, and yet so much the same in construction 
and in content. Construction-wise, each psalm has 22 lines across what we see here, 10 verses each. And the lines are, each one, a perfect Hebrew acrostic. You can't see that in the English, unfortunately. But if we were to read these in the Hebrew, we would note that every one of the 22 lines in both psalms begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet and runs right through the Hebrew, literally, alphabet. The Hebrew alphabet. After the opening of Hallelujah in Psalm 111, and again, Hallelujah at the beginning of Psalm 112, each line is consecutive as a Hebrew letter. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, all the way down, ending with Tav. So if you'd like to take a moment, go ahead and write those letters in your margins. Feel free to do so. I actually did that in my Bible. I wrote in the Hebrew letters just to remind me these are acrostic psalms. And it took me like, I don't know, an hour and a half to figure out how to write in Hebrew. It's very strange. But these are all there, and and it's a, a wonderful way to do a psalm. There are a few other psalms that attempt this, but they're not perfect. They'll drop a letter here or there, but you get the idea that it's an acrostic. These two are perfect acrostics in the Hebrew. And furthermore, each verse in Psalm 111 parallels the counterpart in Psalm 112. And we're not going to do this tonight, we really don't have time, but but you can go verse by verse doing a comparison study. And what I mean by that is verse 1 of Psalm 111, compare that to verse 1 of Psalm 112. Compare verse 2 to verse 2, verse 3 to verse 3, verse 4 to verse 4. It's obvious that the Holy Spirit inspired the writer to write these two hand in hand, for comparison and contrast and understanding. And it's a great way to study these psalms. I almost did tonight, but there's so much else I want to look at. So I'll just leave that with you in your own study. In fact, homework this week. There's your homework. Compare and contrast verse 1 to verse 1, 2 to 2, 3 to 3, all the way down. And you'll find some more rich rewards in studying it this way. It's pretty cool. Now that's the construction of the Psalms and their similarity, but as we've studied with all the Psalms, it's not the construction so much we want to focus on, it's the content. What do these Psalms say? And these two Psalms both are Psalms for the company of the upright. Psalms for the company of the upright. As Psalm 111 begins, Praise the Lord, I'll give thanks to the Lord with all my heart, in the company of the upright and in the assembly. And I was excited by that thinking that tonight we're going to study these psalms in the company of the upright. That's who we are. That's what happens as we gather together. You may be saying, oh, Pastor, I'm not sure if you know me as well as you think you do, if you think I'm part of the company of the upright. It's okay, we'll get there. We'll deal with that. I see Sean over here. Hi, Sean. Welcome to town, man. How long are you here for? Tonight. And he's chosen to spend it with the company of the upright. Right on. It's good to see you, man. That's all. This is what I love about the military. What I hate about the military is they keep taking our guys and, and, our, and our girls away. But what I love about them is they come back. So we get to see them from time to time. Alright, back to this. Psalms for the company of the upright. Psalm 111, we hear the blessing of the upright. And what I mean by that is it's an upright company of people blessing the Lord. Praising the Lord. That's what Psalm 111 is. The upright gathered together to praise the Lord. Psalm 112 are, the, are the, um, the benefits of the upright. So 111, the blessing of the upright to the Lord. And Psalm 112, the benefits of the upright for the upright themselves. The benefits of being righteous. And this is important. Because we live in a world that says whatever to the idea of righteousness. The benefits of being good. 
You know, the, the blessings of being holy. Oh, that's, that's something only you church people could come up with. And you pastors would sit there and try and convince people that it's actually more fun, more blessed, more encouraging, more uplifting, more exciting to live a holy life than to live the way we do. You guys have got to be off your rocker. Well, Psalm 112 gives us some benefits that cannot be denied for a life where you choose to live righteously. So these two psalms together, they proclaim the value of righteousness. And it's a value that's been undermined even in the church. Even in the church. Kind of putting down righteousness. We don't want to appear too righteous, too holy. Let's make sure that we're not too different. That we're not outstanding in our Christian walk. Because, you know, that could be seen, again, by the world as a little strange. Well, tonight's study is a study in righteousness. Now, you Bible students know Psalm 5, or or Book 5 of the Psalms, parallels Deuteronomy. And we're in Book 5 now. And it emphasizes, as we mentioned on Sunday, the perfection of the Word of God and the praise of the Lord. Those two things come up again and again, those themes throughout the rest of the Psalms. The perfection of the Word and the praise of the Lord. And as we've already begun to do so tonight, you take these two together, worship, as we've done, and now the Word, as we are doing. And they have this way of tuning our hearts into the frequency of the righteousness of God. The more I worship, the more in tune I am with His goodness, His holiness, the more in awe I am of His righteousness. And the more I'm in the Word, and I hear the wonderful stories, and I see His marvelous deeds and His wonderful works, again, I get caught up in this concept of righteousness. And what begins to happen, and I hope it's already begun to happen to you tonight, righteousness rubs off. Righteousness rubs off. Now, before we go too far into these, there are a couple of ways of looking at righteousness. And I want you to think these through with me, and we're going to come back to these throughout the study tonight. Imputed righteousness and intended righteousness. Honestly, as a youth pastor for 15 years, I never thought I would ever use the word imputed in a teaching. Well, here we go. Imputed righteousness and intended righteousness. Imputed righteousness is that which God does in me. I can't do it. I am incapable of literally being intrinsically righteous in and of myself. I'm not. But God does it. He imputes righteousness to me, in me, in you. That's imputed righteousness. Intended righteousness is what I do with it. It's how I behave in word and deed. It's my righteous acts. The the Bible talks about the righteous acts of the saints. That we are capable of doing right, of choosing right behavior, of acting in a righteous and upright way. But, But let's not get ahead of ourselves. In fact, let's go back a little ways. Keep your finger in Psalm 111 and go back to Psalm 14. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Skip ahead to Psalm 53. Psalm 53. And again we hear, as David writes, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. 
There's no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Yeah, we heard you the first time, Rick. I just wanted to make sure you got it. Psalm chapter 5, verse 9. I'll just read this for you. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Psalm 140, verse 3, tells us they sharpen their tongues as a serpent. Poison of a viper is under their lips. Psalm 10, verse 7, says his mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8, tell us their feet run to evil. They hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace. There's no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. And Psalm 36 verse 1 tells us, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Just wanted to give you a little lift tonight. Why go through all those psalms? Do they sound familiar when taken together? They should. Because... We've just read Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. Turn over there. The book of Romans, chapter 3. Head right until you get there. Just keep going. It's in the New Testament. Page 1142. <laughs> that's just a, if, you're, if you're new to Bible study, that's a little insider's joke. Because no two Bibles are, are that have the exact same pages unless they happen to be the exact same Bible. Anyway. I just find that funny. You know, it's, it's the things that keep me going. <laughs> Romans chapter 3. Verses 10 through 18 are exactly what we read. Paul quotes from Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Isaiah 59, and Psalm 36. And those are the quotes there in the midst of Romans chapter 3. But he prefaces all that in Romans chapter 3 verse 9 saying the following. Are we better than they... He's been talking about the Jewish people. Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, or Gentiles, are all under sin. Now remember, we just started this evening talking about the company of the upright. And yet Paul is saying we are all under sin. The scriptures have made it clear. The world has made it clear that we are all under sin. The inclination of the heart of man is to rebel against the Lord. To choose wickedness. So what did the Lord do in response to all this? He gave the law. God brings the law, a neon, high beam, high voltage spotlight to call attention to the darkness in our lives. Look down in Romans 3 verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed. And all the world may become accountable to God. God gave the law to close our mouths. To say to all humanity, shut up. Now I know some of you are having a hard time thinking of God saying shut up. But that's what the law does. It shuts us up. Before the law, people could wander around and say, oh, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good guy. And God said, okay, let's see how good you are. Here's the law. Let's see if you can keep perfection. And once that flashlight got turned on, I was like, oh, I'm not as good as I thought. 
And it makes us accountable to God. The commandments make everybody accountable to God. And it shuts us up, or eventually it will. There are going to be people you know, lined up for judgment, standing before God, and they're going to say, All right, Lord, oh, look, I, you know, I, I know I didn't make that rapture thing and, and all that, and I died in that tribulation deal, and I've been kind of in a bad place, but I've got something to say here. And God will say, Well, let me first show you the law, and it will close their mouths. And I guarantee you, and this is hard to say but true, there's not going to be a single person going to hell who doesn't know they deserve it. Oh, they may argue. They may try to make a case for themselves, but they will recognize and realize that's where they belong. All the world will be accountable to God. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh, no flesh, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But, and I'm glad that Paul says but here, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified, note this, being justified as a gift. Merry Christmas. There's the best gift anyone could get this holiday season. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Bible students, what does propitiation mean? Do you remember? Forgiveness taken away. It's it's bigger. Take it a step further. All right, listen. I've I've shared this before. Let me say it again because I want to make sure you all get it. You're right. You're right. It is forgiveness. It is taken away. Atonement is covering. Propitiation is erasing. Every time you see that word propitiation, get that in your heads. Propitiation is erasing. Complete removal. Not a speck left. Nothing left. In other words, God displayed Jesus publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. That means there's not a single sin left on you. If you're saved by the blood of Jesus, it's gone. There's nothing left that could possibly condemn you because of the propitiation of Jesus' blood. That's awesome. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. Again, that word righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. That is, those sins before the cross. How does God save all those people who died before Jesus died on the cross? He passed over their sins and waited until Jesus died and then gave that same redemption that He gives to you and to me. He gives that same redemption to Abraham, to Daniel, to David. To those who died in faith before the cross, they received the same. For the demonstration, verse 26, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Rick, are we studying Romans or the Psalms? We have to study Romans to get Psalm 111 and Psalm 12. Now go back there. Here's the point. Righteousness rubs off. God's righteousness imputed to us, in us, making us intrinsically righteous. Propitiation. Completely clean. My friends, you are looking at a man tonight who is perfect in the eyes of God. (laughs) Isn't that incredible? Look around. You are in the company of the upright. 
people who are perfect in the eyes of God. And we know we're not. I'm like, boy, if he only knew this, he does. But the blood of Christ has already erased it. We are perfect in His sight. The imputed righteousness of God makes me spiritually clean through Jesus. And that leads me to my intended righteousness. Now because I have the imputed righteousness of God and I am, already am made perfect and righteous in Christ Jesus, I want to act that way. And that's the breakdown in Christian thought. I have God's righteousness, therefore I can do whatever I want. No! I have the righteousness of God in me covering me, therefore I will be righteous. I'm going to do righteous things. I'm going to make righteous choices. I'm not going to live like the world anymore. God's already cleaned me up. I want to live clean. I want to be the way He has made me to be. And I actually like Ferris Bueller can become a righteous dude. (laughs) Different kind of righteous than Ferris. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 111. Go back there now. Verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. We've just gone Aleph and Bet right there. Two letters. Aleph, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. Bet, in the company of the upright and in the assembly. The company of the upright. I just love the sound of that. It's probably good we weren't studying Psalm 111 seven years ago because I might have named the church the company of the upright. The British Christian Company of the Upright. That would freak people out, wouldn't it? Are you a company or are you a church? What are you? Well, we're the Company of the Upright. Listen to this. The word upright here, the Hebrew word is yashar, and you need to note this. It has three meanings to it. Three meanings to being the Company of the Upright. Meaning number one is yashar means straight. Straight. Pertaining to not being crooked. We were, gang, we were not saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ to continue on down a crooked path. We were not saved to continue in our sin. Paul says in Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What he's saying is, how, do, how can I who has the imputed righteousness of God, how can I choose then to live unrighteously? It makes no sense. I've been made upright. Why would I not want to live uprightly? So it means straight. Secondly, yashar in the Hebrew means level. Straight and level. As in not being bumpy with elevations or depressions. Level. The righteousness of God does that. It keeps me level keeps me level. No elevations. There's no pride in righteousness that is imputed by God. What people call self-righteousness. Oh, you're so self-righteous. Well, yeah, there's pride in self-righteousness. There is no pride in God-righteousness. When I know that all that I am that is good has come from, has been given by God, there's no pride, no elevating myself. I'm level. There's also gain no depressions. I'm not sinking down in self-pity anymore. I'm not wallowing in, oh, my old sinful self. Oh, I just can't seem to get it together. Here's the answer to not being able to get it together. Get it together. (laughs) Oh, but I just can't do it. You have the imputed righteousness of God. You already are righteous. So live that way. Act that way. Choose to be what God has already declared you to be. No elevations. No self-righteous pride. Romans 3.27, Paul says, where then is boasting? It's excluded. 
By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You can't boast about faith. Oh, that's such a great faith. You can't do that. Faith is just saying, I believe Jesus to do what I can't do. Keeps me level. No elevations. No depressions. I don't go either way. I'm just level with the Lord. Straight with the Lord. And the third meaning of Yashar is simply right. Right. Straight, level, and right. Right, meaning morally innocent and proper according to a standard. God makes me righteous, listen to this, according to the standard of the law. But haven't we often said we can't keep the law? Exactly, but Christ was perfect and did keep the law. And in dying for us, imputed the righteousness of the law to us so that now we are keepers of the law. Not to save ourselves, but because Christ gave us that that righteousness, God's perfect law. Romans 8 verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Now catch that. The law wasn't weak in and of of itself. The flesh made the law weak. Flesh, because we couldn't keep it. But he goes on, he says, God did this. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled, listen, in us. The requirement of the law, the perfect law fulfilled in me, yeah, because of Christ. Fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but now according to the Spirit. Now again, I'm spending some time on this tonight because far too often, Christians have been trained to miss the beauty and the power of God's imputed righteousness in us. That we are righteous people. It's a righteousness that, as I've said, allows me to intentionally act righteously. How many of you have heard the old adage, the church is not a sanctuary for the saints, it's a hospital for the sick? How many have heard that the church is a hospital for the sick? Let me tell you something. That denies our calling. It denies our calling. The church as a hospital for the sick? So, we're just sitting around here sin sick and pathetic. Is that what you're telling me? It's not true. When we come to Jesus and He imputes righteousness to us, we are the most well people in the world. We have been healed and are now well. Now listen, let me take this a little further. This mentality of the church as a hospital for the sick causes people, and I've seen it happen, it causes people to shuffle into church fresh off the sin of the week, whatever it might be this week, sorrowful and mournful in demeanor as though we're patients coming into an emergency room rather than saints, the company of the upright, gathered to praise the Lord. Don't get me wrong. I do believe the church needs to be an open door for the care and the healing and the comfort of those who are broken in sin. The problem is, and Ray and I were talking about this, I'll talk about this more on Sunday, he mentioned it last Sunday. The problem is we get to the born again part and we stay right there. And we keep wanting to be born again, 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 again. You're born again once. You don't get reborn again after you've been born again. That's the whole point of the again, the first time. Okay? I've been born again. That's it. Then what? That I might enter the kingdom. 
And far too often in the church, we're in this hospital mentality of birthing ourselves again and again and never moving on to kingdom living. Never moving on into the righteousness that we have been created for and called to. No, instead we're staying in our sin-sick place. We ourselves have been healed of sin. The door needs to be wide open, arms open, inviting the sinner to come in, just as we were once invited to come in. But that doesn't make the church a hospital filled with broken, sick, sinful, wallowing people who know Jesus, but we just can't get over ourselves. It is time for the righteous to be righteous. For the church to stand up and say, we are blood-bought by Jesus Christ, our lives are changed, we are whole, we are healed. And gang, the problem is, our healing itself is directly related to His righteousness. Healing and righteousness go hand in hand with the Lord. Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 says, As for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. That's the description of someone who recognizes their imputed righteousness. I'm a calf, free out of the stall. I'm dancing, kicking it up, skipping around, happy to be free. Woohoo! But how often does a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night even not look like calves coming out of the stall, but it looks more like horses caught in the rain? <laughs> Jesus was in Capernaum, there by the sea. Possibly Peter's house, we don't know, but he was in a house there in Capernaum, and suddenly, as he's teaching all these people, masses of people, the roof opens up, and a stretcher comes down. Remember the story? And some friends of a paralytic, they lower this guy down, creative guys, I love that. And he comes right there before Jesus, and what was the first thing Jesus said to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven. forgiven. He looks right beyond the physical malady, and goes directly to the heart of the matter. Righteousness. Your sins are forgiven, he says. In fact, literally in, in Mark chapter 2, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. How would that feel? Gentlemen, to hear Jesus look at you and, and to hear Him say, Son, your sins are forgiven. Ladies, to hear Him say, Daughter, your faith has made you well, as He does in another place. He goes on and, and says to the Pharisees who were a little upset that he forgave someone since how could he do that it just blew their minds Jesus says in Mark 2.9 which is easier to say to the paralytic your sins are forgiven or to say get up pick up your pallet and walk which is easier to do heal someone of their sin or heal someone of their physical problem <laughs> obviously sin is the challenging one Jesus says but so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins and he turns and he says to the paralytic I say to you get up pick up your pallet and go home and he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying we have never seen anything like this what have they never seen healing well they had seen healing or at least heard about it in their own stories but they had never seen a man come and lift the sin off another man Unbelievable, incredible, astounding. Our healing gang comes through righteousness first. Jesus would far rather impute His righteousness to you than heal you of the common cold or the less common cancer. He would far rather you are healed. And we have a new birth in Jesus, the propitiation of our sins. But when we fail to recognize the wonder of this gift of grace that has changed us, 
we ignore our own healing. And we stay in that wallowing place. The company of the upright is not about putting a band-aid on a gaping chest wound. The company of the upright is made up of people whose hearts have been replaced with a fresh, new, eternal heart. A spirit washed clean. Everlasting. And yes, righteous. This is the company of the upright. The the assembly of the changed. I know we've only done one verse. Hang with me. We'll be okay. (laughs) 1 Peter 2, verse 9 calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And He's not talking to Jews there. How do you know that? Because He says, For you once were not a people, Gentiles, But now, you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's the company of the upright. That's who the psalmist is referring to, and that's you, and that's me, and that's all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved. Isn't that marvelous? It should bring a smile to your face. Verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Do you delight in the study of the Word? Does it thrill you? I mean, I, I, I had to be trained into it, granted. I grew up going to church and, and hearing the Word, but not hearing it, you know? It, it was presented in such a boring way, and I, I just remember suffering through the sermon. God did not call us to suffer through His Word. And I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of pastors and preachers standing there with the Lord going, we're really sorry we made it so dull. (laughs) Just apologize, I'm sorry. And God will say, yeah, I know, I say people in spite of you. (laughs) By the way, all you dull guys, we have a special house for you over here. Go enjoy yourselves. (laughs) Don't you just love, though, the wonderful stories of the works of God. I, I love this time of year because, again, it's the one time when the world tends to talk about one of the great stories, birth of Christ. And Naomi can't get enough of it. Every morning driving to school, Dad, tell me the story again. And we start, you know, well, it was a dark night in Bethlehem, and stars were overhead, and she's just, you see her little eyes. She just hangs on everywhere. In fact, you know what, the other night, and I couldn't believe this, I'm in Naomi's room, and her and David are there in bed together where we're reading stories together. And Naomi says, Dad, tell me the story. Well, David's sitting there. David's you know, two and a half years old. And I'm thinking, well, David needs pictures. How's he going to handle this? But I thought, okay, he's looking a little sleepy. I'll tell the story. And so I started telling the birth story of Jesus. And Naomi's like, oh, no, you forgot the shepherds. I got, I'll get to the shepherds, Naomi. And I mentioned the shepherds. Oh, you forgot the wise men. Yeah, but they didn't come till later, Naomi. I'll explain, you know. And then I noticed David, and he is hanging on every word. And it's not because my two-and-a-half-year-old happens to be the most brilliant. Granted, he probably got those genes somehow from me. I don't know. They were imputed to him. <laughs> but this two-and-a-half-year-old child is amazed. I'm amazed at what your word tells me you did. We sing that song. The Word is absolutely marvelous. And the psalmist says this. And at Christmas every year, the story still emerges in our culture, in our narrative. Although, it's getting a little bit murky. Kids were watching Handy Manny the other day. I know it's a favorite show among many of you. 
It's on Nick Jr. It's about this little handyman and all of his tools come to life and they help him fix things. And they're doing the Handy Manny Christmas episode and Handy Manny goes, you know, tools, and the tools are all gathering, you know, tools, what, what makes, <laughs> what the meaning of Christmas really is, and I'm like, oh, they're going to tell the meaning of Christmas on Nick Jr. It's helping our friends. <laughs> it's getting watered down out there. Yeah, I'm just going to go along tonight. Have you seen Narnia, the, the new Narnia out, the, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader? Okay, don't tell me because I haven't seen it. I've, I've read the book, so I know what goes on. But it's supposed to be awesome. I've heard that. It's as good as the first one, if not better. Everybody's saying, great movie, really cool. The story, and, and perhaps you heard this. I just heard this last night. I couldn't believe it. At the end, Aslan, and it's in the book and it's in the movie, but Aslan tells Lucy, one of the primary characters, you're not coming back to Narnia. And he says, but in your world, I am known by another name, and you need to get to know me there. And it's obvious who Aslan is in this world. As C.S. Lewis wrote those marvelous books, and if you haven't read them, you need to read them all. They're just great. It's a clear allegory for Jesus. Aslan is Jesus. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he's killed on an altar, and he comes back to life, breaking the power of darkness. I mean, come on, who is that in all of history? Liam Neeson said last week, well, Aslan could be Buddha. <laughs> it's just, ah. yeah, because Buddha died for my sins. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all those who delight in them. What God has really done, not when some overeating Asian guy did. <laughs> Let's go on. Verse 3. Splendid and majestic is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has made His wonders, note this, He has made His wonders to be remembered. His wonders, the word wonders there in Hebrew is wonderful acts. We've seen that word a couple of times recently. His wonderful acts, the things He's done. He did them that they might be remembered. Deuteronomy, the parallel book, which is book 5 of the Psalms. Deuteronomy 24.18, he, he says, You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. And in Deuteronomy... Fifteen times the Lord says, you shall remember. I want you to do this. Why, Lord? You shall remember. I want you to remember what it is that I've done. Look at verse 5. He has given food to those who fear Him. He will remember His covenant forever. The word food there in the Hebrew is teref, and it means meat. Literally, meat. What meat? He's given meat... To those who fear Him. Think about this. What meat is connected to a covenant that is connected to the deliverance from Egypt, which is what about the the psalmist is talking about here. What meat is connected to this covenant that He would remember forever connected to their deliverance from Egypt? Lamb. The Passover lamb. That's the meat that's being talked about here in verse 5. This meat of the Passover. And this was so clear in the woe-begone days of the biblically literate church 
that across the centuries, this psalm was called the psalm of communion. The church would read Psalm 111 as a communion meditation psalm. Recognizing the meat to those who fear Him, He will remember His covenant forever, the Passover Lamb, which we know God gave as a picture of His Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ, who is the meat for those who fear Him, the bread of life. Kyle and Delich in their commentary write, Even from the time of Theodoret and Augustine, the thought of the Eucharist has been connected with verse 5 in the New Testament mind. And it is not without good reason that Psalm 111 has become the psalm of the church at the celebration of the Lord's Supper. I have never heard Psalm 111 read for communion. You're probably going to hear it at the bridge sometime in the near future. When the company of the upright gathers, though, gang, the Lord's Supper is the centerpiece of that righteous gathering. Why? So that we remember. We do it to remember. The Lord says, you shall remember. And Jesus said, listen guys, 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26, Paul quotes this, but Jesus says to His boys, this is My body, which is for you. Do this to remember Me. Remember. In the same way He took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. Do it to remember Me. Why do you guys take communion every Sunday at the bridge? We take it to remember the wonderful acts of the Lord. What He did at Calvary. How He died for our righteousness. That we might gather as the company of the righteous remembering His imputed righteousness to us in Jesus Christ. You shall remember. Verse 6. He has made known to His people the power of His works in giving them the heritage of nations. The works of His hands are truth and justice. Not the American way. I thought I'd point that out. All His precepts are sure. The word there, sure, is faithful. All His precepts are faithful. They're upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and, again, the word, uprightness. Why? Because righteousness rubs off. Righteousness rubs off. Did, did you get a little there on your, on your shirt? There, a little righteousness, Lydia? I hope so. She's going, no, I don't think I got righteous. I think it was just spit, Pastor Rick. <laughs> I think that was righteousness. <laughs> I hope righteousness is getting all over you tonight. I hope that every one of us walk out the door by the end of the evening going, wow, I'm clean. I am a righteous person. I am part of the company of the upright. And I hope Sunday morning all of us walk in here and everyone else who comes shuffling in in the doldrums of their sinful week start going, what are you so happy about? I'm righteous! (laughs) The righteousness of God, it rubs off. Verse 9. He has sent redemption to His people. He has ordained His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. Redemption. Again, speaking of the redemption, at least when Psalm 111 was written, the redemption of the people of Israel brought out of Egypt. But our redemption is so much bigger. It's the redemption of our lives brought out of the sin of the world and into a future with the Lord. The redemption of His people. He's ordained His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do. Now, 
the translators added his commandments because that's the implication there. But I like reading it without his commandments. Just listen to this. A good understanding have all those who do. All those who, who do, that's the key word. Do. The blessings of the upright. That is, the upright bless the name of the Lord, worship Him for His righteousness on them, and the key word is do. A good understanding have all those who do. How am I supposed to follow God? I don't know what to do. I mean, you've got all your church stuff, and I don't get the Bible, I don't get the church, I don't get you religious people. I don't understand. Hey, the best way, listen, the best way to understand the commands of the Lord is to do them. It's not to figure them out. It's just do them. Why should we just do them? Yeah, but I don't know. Just do them. Just do them. The people of Israel, 613 commandments. And some of them were a little strange. To their understanding at the time, some of them didn't make a whole lot of sense. Why not boil a goat in its mother's milk and eat it? Why not? That's a weird one, Lord. That's one of those where an Israelite could have said, but Lord, I... And the Lord would say, just do it. You don't have to understand it. The understanding comes through the doing. Righteousness, gang, my intended righteousness, not God's imputed righteousness, not what He gives me, but my righteous behavior, I don't always understand why I have to be so nice to someone who's being such a jerk, but I'm just going to do it. Why? Because God told me to. And I begin to understand that it works. Righteousness works. Upright behavior, upright living, it works. It changes people around you. It impacts your whole lifestyle. It's incredible how that takes place. James said in James 1.22, Prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Let that sit heavy on us just for a moment. Hearers of the word delude themselves. Those who come into church, hear a good sermon, hear some teaching, and then walk out of here and go... Wasn't that great? And they go right back to the same way they were living before are deluding themselves. How so? They think they're saved. And I've shared before, there are people sitting in churches all across America. There are people who sit in this church who are not saved. Oh, I don't know that. I'm I'm not judging. I I don't have a list of people that I know are he's not saved. She certainly is not saved. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying there are people who are deluding themselves because they're sitting here hearing the word going, ah, isn't that nice? And it does nothing. And there's no heart change. And there's no righteous behavior to go to the righteousness that's been imputed and, and they're deluded. They're the ones sitting in church on the Sunday when the rapture happens going, why am I still here? I don't, I don't get it. The company of the uprights are not those who delude themselves. James says, anyone, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself, he's gone away. Immediately he has forgotten what kind of person he was. Well, let me ask you, what kind of person are you? What kind of person are you, really? Have you forgotten the righteousness of God in you? The righteousness you receive through faith in Jesus Christ. Man, the second I walk away from that mirror, I walk away from the company of the upright, I forget about the fact that I am righteous. 
And God would say to you and to me tonight, remember your righteousness. Why? Because it will change your behavior. And consequently make your week a little better as well. Don't walk away and forget it. You remember you are of the company of the righteous. That's the whole point of this acrostic psalm. To remember and to bless the Lord for His imputed righteousness in you. Now, the psalmist begins with the letter LF. Again, he starts over to give what I call the alphabet bennies of the upright. Okay? Now we get into the benefits of being upright. Why would you choose this kind of a lifestyle to live righteously and to deny yourself all these things? I've had conversations with my kids before about certain movies that come out and I can't watch them. And I'd like to. I mean, just being totally honest, there's some where the, the ad for it looks really cool. And I go, oh yeah, that's going to be awesome. Oh, that's going to be great. Rated R. And I'm not going to go see it. Well, Dad, why don't you just make an exception? Because I always walk out of movies like that going, why did I go see that? And so you just draw the line. Benefits. Why would, why would you deny yourself some of the things that the world has to offer? Well, there are seven benefits to righteousness as seen in this next psalm. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. See the parallel, by the way? Verse 1 of Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Praise the Lord, Psalm 112, verse 1. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. Verse 2. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Number one of the seven benefits given in this psalm, a blessed posterity. A blessed posterity. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. A blessed posterity. Why would I want to live a holy and righteous life? Because I will have a blessed posterity. Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. How do you train up a child in the way he should go? Let me tell you, most young parents, at least if they're anything like I was as a young parent, don't have a clue what they're doing. We like everybody to think we are, or we do, you know. And as a young parent, we, I, I like to say things like, aren't my kids good kids? Yeah, because my wife and I have it down. And at home we'd be like pulling our hair out. I don't know what to do with this child. How do you train up a child in a way he should go when you don't even know what you're doing yourself? And the answer is simple. It begins with your uprightness. When? When am I supposed to be upright? <laughs> Before you have children. Now, those of you who are young, especially, and I'm looking in the front row and I'm looking over here at Margaret Rose is going, I'm never going to have kids ever. Yeah, you are. And when you do, (laughs) the best thing you can do, Margaret, for your kids in the future is be upright now. Not then. It's not waiting for it. You know how many people start going to church because they have kids? Oh, we probably ought to start getting it together. (laughs) It'd be a lot better if you were upright like a decade before your kids came along. It would make all the difference. You walk before your children level and straight and right. Noah was an upright man. He was a man who feared the Lord. And the Hebrew writer gives us some interesting insight. Hebrews 11 verse 7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So Noah, 
gets that imputed righteousness. But he built the ark for the salvation of his household. That's in his mind. That's what Noah's thinking. God says, I'm going to flood the world. I'm destroying everything. I want you to build an ark. And Noah's thought is, oh, i got to build the ark for my family's sake. Guess what? Twenty years went by before his firstborn son was born. If you look at the biblical chronology, Noah obeyed God and began building the ark 20 years before Shem came into the world, before he even had a family. He's living upright for 20 years. He's obeying the Lord for 20 years. And then his children come, and guess what? By the time his children come into the world, the ark's half done. And they can watch Dad finish. And they get on board, and their lives are saved because Dad started preparing 20 years earlier. What if Noah had waited to start on the ark until his kids were born? Oh, I have a son. Yeah, I better take God seriously. Twenty years later, the half-finished ark would have been flooded and sunk to the bottom of the world. But Noah planned. He worked ahead. He obeyed. You want kids someday, Rachel, who will be blessed? Then you live right now. You live right, right now. What about those who have no kids and never will? Note this, it's not just the descendants or the seed of the upright, it's the generation of the upright that will be blessed. The generation. I'm talking about your generation. I'm talking about my generation. And the truth is, gang, every one of us, whether we ever have children or not, will either be a blessing to our generation or bring a curse upon it. It's no middle ground. I'm either going to bless this generation or I'm going to curse it. How will I bless it? Because I live an upright life and someone else gets on the boat. Or, I don't live uprightly and other people are deluded and dissuaded and never get on the boat. I'm either a blessing or I'm a cursing to this generation. And that's why Paul wrote in Philippians 2.14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. That is amazing to me. This incredible, powerful picture. Lights in the world, holding fast the word of, of life. And Paul says, and here's how you do it. Here's how you show yourself to be different in this world. Don't crumble. And stop complaining. And I wonder at work how many people see us and say, Ooh, you just grumble like the rest of us. You talk behind the boss's back like everybody else. You're no different than we are. And Paul says, let's, let's get down to business. Where it counts in day-to-day relationships with real people who are really watching you. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Be a light. In that place, save this generation. Okay, what about those, however, who tried to live right, who tried to raise their kids, but their kids didn't follow? And I have to address this because I know that in a fellowship of this size, I know there are those who who sit there and say, my kids don't follow. Did all of Noah's sons end up doing well? No, they didn't. Well, they were all on the boat, saved from the flood. Ham was saved in the flood, but later Ham ended up bringing a curse on his own son, Canaan. Canaan, the Canaanites. The people that ultimately God had to say to Israel, I want you to go back in the land and I want you to wipe out every single one of them because they are so sin-sick and wicked. Those are the descendants of Ham, the son of Noah. 
And Ham was the one who brought that curse on them. Genesis 9, 25-27. You can look that up. And it's a sad tale. It was Ham's lifestyle, Ham's behavior that fed into his son Canaan and then the offspring of Canaan, the Canaanites, were cursed and lived cursed lives. What I'm saying is in their free will. And I deal with this right now. I've got two kids, as you know, that are just out the front door. And then I have four kids who are still at home. And I, as a parent, think all the time, what if one of them goes off the deep end? And it can happen. It it, it may happen. I pray it won't. What if it does? In their free will, whether my children follow the path of righteousness or not, if I am upright before them, I will still be a blessing to them. If there are those of you who have children who are not believers right now, you still live uprightly before them and you will be a blessing to them and God knows you may even see them saved. But at least you can bless them. But I'll tell you what, I guarantee this, if I chose to walk in the path of wickedness, my children would be cursed by it. And so upright living is a blessing, a blessed posterity. Number two, a blessed prosperity. Verse three, wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. Cool, I get money. It's not what it's talking about. <laughs> it's not like suddenly you become a Christian and pick up a salary you know, for it. We're not talking about wealth and riches from an American perspective, but from a Hebrew perspective. What's that? Two words here. Wealth is the word hone. Hone which means enough. We think of wealth as an abundance. Wealth in the Hebrew means sufficiency. You can pay your bills. You got food on the table, you got clothes on your back. It's enough. Home. Riches is the word ashar. And it can either mean lots, you know, a plenteous amount of wealth and money, or it can mean to be enriched. To have a life that's enriched. So wealth and riches here means I have enough and I'm enriched. It doesn't mean that I'm rolling in the money. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8, Paul says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency, hone, sufficiency enough in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. He says in 2 Corinthians 9.11, you will be enriched in everything. Why? For all liberality which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. You're going to be enriched and blessed so that you can give more. And by the way, there's a cool thing that happens, a dynamic there. The more you give, the more God enriches you so that you can give more. And the more you give more, He enriches you more so you can continue to give more. Because as you've heard the phrase, I'm sure many times, you can't outgive God. It's a scary thing, but try it. Just see if you can give more than God can provide for you. I don't know if anyone's ever really tried that. Because we get to a certain point and go, ah, I've got to have a burger. <laughs> got to feed myself, Lord. I can't give that five bucks. That's the last. I've got to take care of me. You can't outgive God. All sufficiency to be enriched. But the benefit of prosperity here is greater still. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. And we're right back to the upright, imputed righteousness of God that He's given us through Christ. 
And that's unparalleled by the Gates and the Buffets and the Soruses of the world. <laughs> they don't have a wealth that can even compare to what you have in Jesus Christ. And that is something eternal. The prosperity of the upright. Verse 4. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He's gracious and compassionate and righteous. I, I like this one. Number three, a blessed phosphorescence. <laughs> a blessed phosphorescence. Not only a blessed posterity and a blessed prosperity, but a blessed phosphorescence. What do you mean? You know what phosphorescence is? It's that light that remains after the light source has been removed. The light remains there for a time and then eventually it, it will fade. Phosphorescence is the glowing reflection of the original source of light. And if you are the upright, one of the blessings, one of the benefits is you have a blessed phosphorescence. Psalm 97 verse 11 says, Light is sown like seed for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. What do you mean, Pastor? You have a glow. But it's not like the glow of Moses. Moses had a phosphorescence. Moses went up the mountain, saw God, came down the mountain, and the Bible tells us he glowed. And it was so much it freaked the people out. They said, please, put a veil on. Because you're scaring us. All the little ones, they see you and they go running off. Put a veil on. So he would wear this veil. And I loved it. You know, the, the Charlton Heston version of the glow was his beard just got longer. <laughs> well, that's impressive. Okay, so he's Santa Claus now. What's the deal? <laughs> Moses' face lit up. But Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, We're not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. (laughs) They told him to put on a veil because it scared him. Moses put on the veil because he didn't want them to see his losing the glow. He didn't want them to recognize that he hadn't been with the Lord very long or, or that he'd been away from the Lord for a while and the glow was starting to go away. Well, Paul says, you're not like that. The upright... Those with the imputed righteousness of God, the glow never goes away. That's a blessed phosphorescence. It never fades away. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. I know we read that verse a lot. It's just awesome. It means we're getting better in our Christian lives. More like Jesus. More righteous in our behavior. The glow is brighter, not fading company of the upright the blessing of the upright is that the spirit of Christ he remains in you the one who makes you righteous gives you the power then to act with righteousness verse 5 we'll finish up here it is well with the man who is gracious and lends he will maintain his cause in judgment number 4 you get a blessed perspective the word judgment that doesn't mean that you're going to stand up on judgment day and maintain your cause that's not what he's saying He will maintain His cause in judgment. Literally the word is justice. And what's being described there in verse 5 is discernment. That the upright person understands things. Sees things clearly. Knows what's going on. The wool is not pulled over His eyes. He's able to see because He has the Spirit of Christ. She has the Spirit of Christ. And so you've got this right perspective, this blessed perspective. Psalm 94 verse 15 says that for judgment will again be righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. This is the person who sees clearly. And by the way, 
whose prosperity is graciously given to whoever else has a need. Did you notice that? It's well with the man who's gracious and lends. The upright is someone who lends, who sees a need and fills it, who takes care of the needs around them. And that's God's benevolence for the church. I can't find in the Bible benevolence the way we do it. In the church today, our version of benevolence tends to be someone has a need, write a check from the church budget. And we budget out this much money, it's a small amount, but this much money over here for benevolence causes. And if there's a crisis, we'll write your check. That's not how they did it. We're told in Acts chapter 4, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of lands or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they'd be distributed to each as anyone had a need. That's not a budgeted amount. These people would just give and they'd set it right there and go, okay, there's someone who needs this, someone who needs that, we'll take care of all the needs. And there was no need for benevolence among all of them because they just took... You know what? It was kind of communistic. It was... Divine communism. Is there such a thing? They just took care of each other. It wasn't socialism as in lowering or leveling the playing field. It was grace at work. And that's God's prescription for benevolence. You got a need, you see a need in the church, you fill it. You see someone hurting, you take care of them. Well, go see Pastor Rick, they'll they'll cut you a check. We may not. You see a problem? Take care of it. Meet the need. That's what the upright do. A blessed perspective. Verse 6. He will never be shaken and the righteous will be remembered forever. I like this one. Number 5, it's a blessed post-mortem. A blessed post-mortem. You ever wonder who's going to remember you after you're gone? You ever stop and allow yourself that horrifying thought? What if no one does? What if I'm completely forgotten? I, I was thinking about this over the week and, and I started naming people dear to me who have died and gone on before. I think about Irene, my grandma, her picture's on our refrigerator. And every now and then I walk by and I see her picture and I go, she's something else. I miss her. I think about my grandma Sybil, who was just a righteous woman. I think about Grandpa Herman. And the times that I got to spend with him, my favorite Christmas, and I'm not going to tell you the story now, my favorite Christmas was sitting there listening to him tell stories on a Christmas Eve. It was awesome. I think about Larry, who never saw his 21st birthday. Because Larry, this dear friend of mine, died of stomach cancer. And I remember standing by his bed the night before he died, and he couldn't even talk. Too many tubes were going in and out of him. His his stomach was all bloated out. But his family, his parents were deaf, and so he spoke sign language. His brother, Ron, was there, and Larry lying on his side, his eyes were open, he couldn't talk, but he signed something to Ron. And Ron turned to me with tears in his eyes and said, Larry said he'll see you there. I'll never forget that. I think about Hank's glorious guitar playing. And those of you who are here at the time and got to see Hank with that classical guitar playing with our worship team, and he could play anything. And it was absolutely astounding. And these were some upright people, and you know what? I forget them. In fact, most of the time, I don't think about them at all. Until I stop and I read a verse like, they will be remembered forever, and I go, who do I remember? Oh, yeah! Irene and and, and Sybil and Larry and Herman and, and Hank. 
upright people, but I forget them all the time. Yeah, but the psalm says, the righteous will be remembered forever. They will, because God never forgets. He never forgets. He has not forgotten you, nor will He forget you. And though the world may forget you, your Father will never forget you. David knew this. Psalm 16, verse 10, he said, You'll not abandon my soul to Sheol. And then prophetically, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And Jesus didn't. Three days later, He was out of that borrowed grave. God doesn't forget. But how sad a life that seeks to leave a legacy only on earth. Do something in your life that leaves a legacy. You've got to leave something behind so that you'll be remembered. And you know what? A hundred years later, you're not remembered. Fifty years later, probably not remembered. It's funny to me because people, you know, just recently we had John Lennon's birthday came back. Or, no, no, it was, it was the anniversary of his death. And uh, all kinds of shows were done about it. People remembering John Lennon. You know what? In a hundred years, if we're here a hundred years, and I don't think we will be, for here a hundred minutes, I'll be surprised. That's another story. In a in a hundred years, in a decade, in, in twenty, forty years, John Lennon's going to go the way of the dodo. Who who were the pop singers in the sixteen hundreds? Do you remember them? No, gone. But the upright have a blessed post mortem, never forgotten by God, and eternity with the Lord. Verse seven. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries, a blessed posture. You can stand up straight. Straight and level and right. The definition of upright. A blessed posture. I remember my dad told me when I was young, because I was always a sloucher, still am. I'm 6'1", but I slap, so I'm really more like 5'8", five, 5'9", five, you know, because I just kind of... I was always into hanging out, you know, like, Dad, it's cool, you know. My dad said, hey, well, when I was a young man, I used to walk around carrying a broom handle behind my back. You know, so I'd have good posture, and I'm like, Dad, you're a geek, you know? That's just... You know, I'm not going to wear a broom handle. And you did. The kind of posture I want is the one where I am level and straight and right in my walk with Jesus Christ. Good posture. Standing strong with a steadfast heart. We talked about the steadfast heart from Psalm 108. Psalm 57, verse 7, saying, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. Verse 9. He, again the upright, He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in Honor. And that word horn refers to his authority. Okay? It refers to his kind of um, his standing, if you will. His horn will endure. It's interesting to me here in verse 9 that he has given freely to the poor. Freely to the poor. Do you notice how much uprightness affects our financial decisions? Have you, have you seen this here? Back in verse 3. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Verse 5, it is well with the man who is gracious and lends. Verse 9, now, he is given freely to the poor. If you are a part of the company of the upright, you give freely of what God's given to you. In fact, giving's easy. Dropping it in the box is simple. Having 
children through compassion. Not a problem. Taking care of the needs that you see around you. It makes sense because you know where your provision has already come from. And by the way, that's one example of intentional righteousness. There's imputed righteousness God-given. There's intentional righteousness and it's those decisions that I make with what God has given to me. One of the things God has provided me with is finances. How am I going to use those? In a righteous way? Because the upright, the upright who's been blessed with it, lends where he sees a need and especially gives freely to the poor. That's intentional righteousness. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 9, Paul said it's written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. So giving to the poor is a sign of righteousness. Now He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. There's a direct connection there between our use of money and our righteous behavior. And the Lord says, if you're righteous, your money is going to be used to benefit my kingdom. By contrast, verse 10 tells us that the wicked will simply perish. The wicked, is just they're just going to perish. Verse 10, the wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. But remember where we began tonight. None is righteous. No, not one. So if that's true, what is it that makes you Christians think that you're better than the rest of us, calling yourself the company of the upright? Who do you people think you are? Oh, I'm righteous because God made... Listen, the difference is imputed righteousness versus intentional righteousness. Now I want you to get this. We're almost done, but you've got to track this here. I can intend to be good... That's intentional righteousness. Anybody can practice intentional righteousness. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. I can intend to be good. And a lot of people are around this time of year. It's amazing how generous people are at Christmas. Oh, they're grumbling about it, but they're generous, you know. They give and they they do the Christmas thing. And that's intended righteousness. But unless I have God's imputed righteousness, I will be vexed. I'll be confused. I will look at Christians and say, I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't know why they have peace. I don't know why they seem joyful. Their life's no better. I don't get it. I don't, it doesn't make sense. And in the meantime, I'm pouring my heart and my soul into this stuff and it's not satisfying me. Well, the desire of the wicked will perish. Intended righteousness is never enough. Intended goodness will never take you far enough. It will never satisfy unless you have the imputed righteousness of God. And there's only one way I know to receive God's imputed righteousness. Charlie Brown was sitting at Lucy's psychiatric booth in the snow. She asked for the five cents and after collecting the nickel fee, she says, I think we better pinpoint your fears. If we find out what you're afraid of, we can label it. Are you afraid of responsibility? If you are, then you have hiking geophobia. Charlie Brown says, I don't think that's quite it. Lucy says, how about cats? If you're afraid of cats, you have aleurophasia. 
Well, sort of, but I'm not sure. Are you afraid of staircases? If you are, then you have climacophobia. Maybe you have thalassophobia. This is the fear of the ocean. Or jephorobia, which is the fear of crossing bridges. Or maybe you have pantophobia. Do you think you have pantophobia, Charlie Brown? What's pantophobia? The fear of everything. That's it! He shouts as she flips over backwards into the snow. Fear of everything. Do you know the reason why we have a word for the fear of everything? Because somebody came along who was afraid of everything. And they had to call it something. So they called it pantophobia. Fear. Fear does that. Fear feeds on itself and creates more fear, which then creates more fear, which then breeds more fear. But there is one fear that drives away all other fears, and that's the fear of the Lord. And did you notice both Psalms contain it? In fact, it's the bridge between Psalm 111 and Psalm 112. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Psalm 112, verse 1, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. The company of the upright is a people who fear the Lord. Wisdom begins there. Delight is discovered there. And it is in the fear of the Lord that Christ becomes known. It's because you finally come to your knees in the fear of the Lord that righteousness is imputed. And I want you to think back, at least from the human perspective, at how it all started. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Don't be afraid. You have a Savior. A Savior who imputes righteousness to you, that you, that I, that we may be the company of the upright. Let's live that way. I mean, what do you say? What do we say? We, we turn the Bridge Fellowship upside, upside down with just being an upright people. Because righteousness rubs off. Father, we thank You for Your righteousness that You impute to us. That You, without any work or ability of our own, that You pour out on us through the blood of Christ, the propitiation of our sins, washing us completely clean, erasing all of the gunk. Your imputed righteousness. And Father, I'm just asking, not that we would be self-righteous again, but God-righteous, that we would be so aware of who we are in Christ Jesus, that we would begin to act that way and to live our lives that way and to reject all the false fallacies of the world, all the stuff that just puts that gunk back before our eyes and to begin to accept the righteousness that we have called to different lives obeying you and living holy and being right before our God Father we praise you because of your righteousness we can be righteous 
Thank You for the gift, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.